0: Welcome back to Adhirate Apologetics. So glad you join us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jay Sklar. He's a professor at Covenant Seminary. Um, Jay, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today?
1: I'm I'm really well. It's a delight to be with you, Zach. Thank you so much.
0: It's gonna be so much fun and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And today we're gonna to be talking about everyone's favorite book of the Bible, I'm sure, Leviticus. Um, so so to start off, could you talk a little bit about like a little bit about like who you are and what you do and what you're interested in like Leviticus and things like this?
1: You know, I actually ask my Old Testament classes when I teach, um, for how many of you is Leviticus your favorite book in the Bible? And about every two or three years, one person puts their hand up in the air. So uh, it is true for some people. Yeah, I've been at Covenant Seminary for 20 years. Um, I'm originally from Canada. You'll probably pick that up when I say anything with an OU diphthong. Out and about is what usually uh, signals to people I'm not from Mississippi. Uh, I teach Old Testament studies. At the school, uh, especially love the first five books of the Bible. That's sort of the area I've concentrated in. Um, been married to Ski, my wife, for uh, almost twenty-five years now, which I describe as twenty-five years of blessing for me and sanctification for her.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Um, so today we're be looking at like at the Book of Leviticus and just like some big questions surrounding the book and what's going on here. Um, so to start off, could you talk a little bit about like why do so many people struggle with the Book of Leviticus?
1: Yeah, a, a lot of people, especially if you're outside the Jewish community, do struggle with Leviticus. And I think there are different reasons. Um, I'll give you four or five. One, um, just the, the genre of the book. So if you're reading through Leviticus, it's almost entirely law. Chapters one through seven, laws on sacrifice. Eight through nine, laws on ordaining priests. You get a bit of a, a narrative in chapter 10, and, and it's a story of two guys dying. And then the rest of the book, laws on purification laws on the day of atonement, uh, laws about holy living. Um, And then in the midst of it, one other chapter that's not narrative, but it's a series of blessings and curses. So when you put all that together, very few people come home at the end of a long day and think I just can't wait to sit down and read 27 chapters of law that involve two narratives in which someone gets killed. So that's one reason why we struggle with that. Second is culturally, it's very strange to us today. So this is a book that occurs Uh, is written to a a tribal community who have laws about ritual purity and impurity, and that's not something that many of us in the West have ever come across. Um, When you read through what it looks like for them to worship God, um, they're offering sacrifices. Uh, And at my church, you can't even throw rice at a wedding. So it's just so different um, culturally. Uh, A third thing, there's an emphasis on ritual. And many in the West uh, look at ritual kind of suspiciously. It seems very magical to us and that kind of thing. Um, a fourth thing is that some of the laws seem really unfair or unjust. So as you're reading through, uh, there are capital penalties that are required in certain instances. Or um, uh, a woman who's had a, babe, uh, had a baby is richly impure twice as long if it's a girl baby compared to a boy baby. And we read that. We might come back to that later in this, in this time. But we read that, we think, what in the world? That just seems so sexist and unfair. A final reason, uh, Leviticus is hard to fit into the overarching story of the Bible. And so we, we have a, a hard time thinking, well, why does it show up at this point, either logically or historically, as you're going through the story of the Bible? So all of those things often make Leviticus a real challenge for us.
0: Mm. So I think it'd be interesting to talk about like why you'd say Leviticus is important then, because someone may look at this and say, well, there's all these strange things going on and I don't really understand what's happening here, Jay. Um, So why does it matter? Why is Leviticus this important book um, that's in our canon?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very few of us go to bed at night thinking, yeah, with the cereal offering, how do I, I mean, it just seems so impractical. I'll give you three different reasons why I think it's still important today. Um, The first, if you're a Christian, you're going to think Leviticus is important because the New Testament writers thought it was important. So here would be an interesting experiment. There are 39 books in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, and these are often quoted in the New Testament. So if you were to line up those 39 books from most quoted to least quoted, where would Leviticus show up? What would most people guess? Well, if we're writing the New Testament, it would like it would be close to last place, you know, maybe doing battle with Chronicles or something like that. But it actually shows up 6th. It's the 6th most most quoted book in the New Testament, showing the importance that the New Testament writers are putting on it. Uh, Second reason why it's important, at least in the story of the the unfolding story of the Bible, Leviticus teaches the people of God how to live in relationship with God. Or let me put it differently. If you're an Israelite at the point in history in which Leviticus is coming, you are so thankful that it shows up because remember the the context here. Uh, The people of Israel, the, the Israelites have been rescued from Egypt Um, They are on their way to the land of Israel, but they stop at Mount Sinai and God enters into this covenant relationship with them. A a covenant's a way to enter into a relationship that's way more uh, permanent than an ordinary relationship and way more personal than a contract. So God's entering into this covenant with them and he says to them, I've got a job for you. You're going to be this kingdom of priests and a holy nation and I'm going to come and dwell in your midst. And if you're an Israelite, you're thinking, how in the world can the God of absolute burning purity live in our midst without his, his holiness just burning us to a crispy critter? How does that work? And you're thinking, and what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation? And the answer is Leviticus, which shows up just at this point to help people to know how to deal with their sin impurity so they don't have to worry about experiencing judgment from God. Uh, More than that, how to reflect God's goodness, justice, mercy, and love into the world as this holy nation. So we look at Leviticus as a burden. The Israelites, um, they they were ones who could look at it actually as a blessing. Hmm. Uh, Third reason why it's important. The topics that it deals with like sin or holiness or atonement all of these are central to the work of the lord jesus and so uh, atonement as one example the fact that he he dies for our sin and this is something that's hard to understand if you don't understand sacrificial atonement that is to say atonement coming by means of sacrifice and and let me illustrate this with uh, a story of a tribe from uh, new guinea Papua new guinea Uh, There was a tribe and some missionaries went to live with this tribe. They were there for a year learning the language, uh, understanding the customs and the culture. Uh, And at the end of a year, they understood the the tribe well enough and had enough of a relationship that they could begin talking to these people about the story of the Bible. Now this tribe knew absolutely nothing about the Bible. And these missionaries understood that they couldn't begin um, with the story of Jesus Uh, they had to begin at the very beginning of the Bible with the story of Genesis. And so they began marching through the biblical story. And as they went through the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, anytime they came across the idea of sacrifice, they would explain to the tribespeople that, yes, God in his scripture has said that if you offer the, the lamb, the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, that you can be forgiven of your sins and cleansed of your sins and have relationship with God. So they would emphasize this on the way through. Finally, they get to the new Testament to the stories about Jesus. And for a week, Jesus is the village Hebrew, uh, village hero. People are getting up before dawn to come and listen to the stories about who Jesus is and, and the whole tribe falls in love with him. This wonderful teacher and healer and, and person who could deliver from demons and evil forces well, at the end of the week, they get to the story about Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And in order to tell this story, the missionaries actually invited some tribespeople from another tribe that had converted to Christianity to come and act out the story. And they video recorded this. And you could could watch as the as the trial of Jesus unfolds and he's beaten and and mocked and scorned, the villagers cannot comprehend what's going on. It's just making hmm absolutely no sense why would people treat Jesus this way and then they got to the the part of the story where um, Jesus is being crucified and the person who was playing the character of Christ he was wearing a t-shirt and under the t-shirt was a bag of red dye and if you remember the story or if you've ever read it when Jesus is on the cross a soldier comes and pierces his side with a spear and so when they acted that out the bag of dye broke and his, his shirt began to soak red with what looked like blood. And at that very moment, you could see the dawn of comprehension uh, on some of the tribes people's faces as they began to realize, oh, Jesus is like that spotless lamb. And as they finished, the missionaries finished telling the story and the Christ figure is put into the tomb and then, and then resurrected and comes out, the missionary proclaims, Jesus is the lamb of God. And because of him, your sins can be forgiven. And all of a sudden, this village elder jumps to his feet and he cries out, which in their language means, I believe. And he goes on to say, I believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And because of him, my sins can be taken away, never to bother me again. And and over here, a a village elder woman jumps up and cries out, and she begins saying the same thing. And person after person is popping up. And all of a sudden, in this tribe, when they were um, really excited, the way they showed that was by jumping up and down. All of a sudden, the whole tribe becomes this mosh pit of praise with people calling out thanksgiving to God because they knew their sins could be forgiven when they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And they understood that because of some of the things that occur in a book like Leviticus. So for these reasons, I, I always tell my students, we need Leviticus today.
0: Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, and one of the like big like kind of ideas that at least people take away from reading Leviticus is this idea of like the purity and impurity. You talked about this a little bit earlier. Um so yeah. you talk a little bit about like what's going on and like why is Leviticus so concerned with purity and impurity?
1: Yeah, no, that's it's a great question, Zach. And I, we need to make begin by making the distinction between ritual purity and moral purity. Hmm. And And usually it's the, let me talk about ritual purity, because ritual purity is what's involved when um, uh, a husband and wife have sex and ritual impurity results, or a woman has a baby and ritual purity results, or a woman's on her period and ritual impurity results. Uh, What's going on with this? The first thing to understand is that ritual impurity is not a moral state. It's a ritual state. And what I mean by that is it tells you where you can and cannot go uh, or what you can and cannot do when you go to the holy sanctuary. Uh, they're, they're equivalent of a, of a church building. Um, it's kind of like today, our state of health, your state of health. Uh, if you have the flu, that's not a moral state, uh, but it does guide you in terms of where you can and cannot go in a hospital. And so if you've got the flu and your friend has just had a new baby, you cannot go into the hospital to visit that baby. Why, because of your moral state? No, because of the state of health. And I was talking to one of our female students about this recently, it was super helpful for her because she really struggled with a lot of these laws about ritual impurity. And as we talked, she realized part of the reason was because she was associating ritual impurity with a moral category. And, and ritual impurity is different. Um, let me put it this way. We read about ritual impurity and we think shame. I think the Israelites read about ritual impurity and they think a natural part of life. Uh, it's like having a cold. So um, at my church, there's a part in the service pre-COVID where uh, we would turn and greet one another. And sometimes I'd turn to shake somebody's hand and they would go like this and say, sorry, I have a cold. And i go, oh, great, thanks. How are you doing today? And we'd engage in conversation. There was no shame with that. It was just a natural part of life. Uh, and this is, I think, what, what ritual impurity was like for them. And I'll illustrate that in just a moment. So the, the thing to keep in mind is that ritual impurity it's not a moral state. And also, it's not new to Israel. Other cultures around Israel also had states of ritual purity and impurity. So when Moses came down from the mountain with the the 10 commandments and the law, and he's talking about ritual impurity, it's not like the Israelites are going, what what was that Moshe? Uh, Help me understand. No, they they understood all about it. So the question is, why does God keep this concept of ritual impurity in his law? And I think the answer is uh, these laws are like a reminder thread through all of life. Just as you deal properly with ritual impurity, and seek to be ritually impure, that's the reminder. Do the same when it comes to moral impurity and being morally pure. Hmm. Uh, And so quick story here. Uh, In one of the classes I taught, I had an assignment called Living Levitically. And people had to follow as many laws of Leviticus as they could for one week. Um, And I said, follow as many laws as you can without getting arrested for one week from the book of Leviticus. And uh, they had to keep a journal all the way through. And it was fascinating. At the end of the time, I read through their journals. And sometimes there was one fella. his, his entry one day was, was simply, I really miss bacon, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what he, but what typically happened by day three or four, I would read an entry that went something like this in almost every single journal. For the past three or four days, I've been thinking about ritual purity and impurity all day long. I've been seeking to make sure that I'm ritually pure and that I cleanse myself of ritually impurity. And all of a sudden it struck me, if I'm to care that much about ritual purity and impurity, how much more does the Lord want me to care about moral purity and impurity? Mm -hmm. Wow, I really serve a holy God. So those are a few things to keep in mind when you're thinking about ritual, uh, ritual purity. It's not a moral state. Uh, it's woven through all of these laws, I think, as this reminder for the people of God to live holy lives.
0: Mm-hmm. It's super interesting because like it just came across to me as like you were talking, Jay, like at least like from like a Christian perspective, um, living in the 21st century, like we kind of relate readelively kids and it's like, oh, that's cool. Um, and we keep going, but like, if you're like an ancient Israelite, like that's kind of like the law code you live by. Um, and just like reading up that story helps me think about it. like, that's, it just, it helps put it in a whole new light. Um, thinking about yeah. the Book of Leviticus. Mm-hmm. So, mm, so the next question is what's the laws of Leviticus? There's a lot of laws and there's a lot of interesting things going on. So how do we determine which laws are relevant to us today?
1: Yeah. And, and this is a really important question to, to consider. Um, the, the first thing I'd say, Zach, is that I think it's important for us as Christians to name that, um, that many of us have been inconsistent here. Um, mm-hmm. We've kind of just picked and chosen the, the laws that we like and said, yeah, they still apply and then ignored other ones. Um, and uh, Christians have been critiqued for this. And I think, I think rightly. Um, when we've done that, we need to own that, um, repent of it. Um, and, uh, and take a a, a, very, a much more thoughtful and different approach. Um, and so that's the second thing I'd say, others have been very thoughtful in trying to answer this question, which laws apply today and which, which laws do not. The most helpful approach to me, uh, I would summarize like this, Leviticus was part of the covenant between God and Israel. So uh, God and Israel enter in this covenant, Leviticus is part of that covenant. When Jesus comes, he establishes a new covenant. Mm -hmm. And what that means, because we're under a new covenant, we don't necessarily need to follow the laws of the old one. Now, I Mm -hmm. say we don't necessarily need to for two reasons. Um, The first is because many of the laws are repeated uh, in the New Testament. They become part of the new covenant. Love your neighbor as yourself. That actually comes from the book of Leviticus. A lot of people don't realize that, but no, that comes straight out of Leviticus and it's repeated five, six times in the New Testament. So we don't necessarily need to follow the old covenant laws, but we say necessarily because one, many laws are repeated. Um, And two, even when a law is not repeated, Uh, And there are different reasons why laws aren't repeated. And uh, in the front of, uh, I've written a a short commentary in Leviticus, I've got a chart in there if people are interested in the introduction that goes into the different reasons why a law is not repeated. But even when a law is not repeated, there's still a principle underlying the law. And I think that makes intuitive sense to us that laws reflect the lawgiver's values. So if you think about even our modern laws, why do we have laws against murder? because we value life. Why do we have laws against stealing? Because we value the right to private property. So laws represent the values of the lawgiver, And so that becomes important when you come to Leviticus and Old Testament law in general, because the Lord is the one who gives these laws, which means I actually encourage my students, think of law as a window into the heart of God. If these reflect his values, then we can speak um, about the law very positively. The longest Psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, is a celebration of the law of God. And I think the Psalmist understood, oh, in this law, it's marking out uh, a path of, of wholeness and goodness that, that if I can walk in this, this is the path God walks in and it keeps me close to him. So just to give you an example, example of laws and their values, Leviticus 19 uh, has the following law. This is Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Uh, when you reap the harvest of your land, uh, don't reap your field right up to its edge. Don't gather the gleanings after your harvest. The gleanings are the little bits of grain that fall out when you're harvesting uh, the crops. Uh, And it goes on to say, don't strip your vineyard bare. Don't gather the fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and for the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Now, when you read a law like this, you can begin to understand and think about, oh, what are the values underlying that law? And so, I'll often put this up on the screen for my classes to consider, and I'll ask, well, what are the values underlying uh, behind this law? And, and um, students will give various answers. They'll say, well, obviously, there's compassion here for the poor. Um, you're you're leaving some some food that they can go and gather. Um, others note um, there's also here a value on on work and on dignity. You're not just collecting it and just giving it, you're, you're allowing the poor to maintain dignity by working hard to, to, uh, to earn the food that they're eating every night and, and thereby retain some self-dignity. So in terms of how the laws apply today, um, even if a law no longer applies as it's originally written, you always want to be thinking and asking, what's the value behind this? What's the principle behind this? Um, what are we learning about the Lord's heart by reading this law?
0: Mm, that's super interesting, um, and I think it'd be helpful. Like this next question here talks about like how can we approach something in Leviticus that may seem like unjust or unfair? Um, mm-hmm. Like I'm sure like people can come across all these different laws and such and be like, well, I don't like that, that doesn't seem fair to maybe like women or um, some sort of like minority or something. So like how can we approach the laws in Leviticus that seem unfair?
1: Yeah. No. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> Um, there, there are a couple of different things I would say. Um, the first, I'd say I completely understand why someone reading Leviticus today would come away thinking, boy, some of these seem really unfair. Um, I'll yeah. come, come back to the, the example I mentioned before about a woman being impure twice as long as she has a girl baby versus, versus a boy baby. Um, so that first thing I'd say, totally get it. Second thing I'd say is um, be aware of your modern presuppositions which is to say we're coming to this text uh, with a set of modern presuppositions that's entirely different than the original audience's presuppositions. Um, the The original audience is a tribal culture. Uh, most of us in the West have no idea of what it's like to grow up in a tribal culture. And the original audience is pre-modern. Uh, most of us in the West have grown up in a modern context. Um, the original context is an honor and shame based society. Um, and most of us, if we've grown up in the West, um, aren't necessarily as uh, familiar with this, although some of us um, are. I have students coming from uh, whose families of origin are, are uh, coming from certain Asian contexts or uh, Middle Eastern contexts where there still is that honor and shame. Uh, as part of society. And so actually some of my students coming from those contexts understand parts of the Bible better than I do, just intuitively because of that honor and and shame basis that they understand. But all that to say, be aware of your modern presuppositions. And that's important because of this. Uh, Let me ask you this a question. Have you ever had your words taken out of context uh, or found yourself saying, well, that's not what I meant. Often we say that with anger because we feel wronged in some way, or at the least we don't feel heard. Um, To say it positively, we value being understood in accordance with what we actually meant to say. And I would just encourage folks, take that same, what you desire for yourself in that way, take that same posture as you're approaching to the Bible so that you're willing to ask, what did this mean in its original context to the original hearers? Uh, So let me give a a practical example. Um, Actually, I'll just say, and and once we do that, uh, often we can come around a corner and say, okay, um, what was tripping me up doesn't need to trip me up in the same kind of way. Um, So let me use that example. Leviticus chapter 12 says that um, if a woman gives birth to a baby, um, she becomes ritually impure. Uh, Text doesn't say why. Um, In many societies, ritual impurity is associated with bodily discharges. So um, that could be the case here, but uh, whatever the reason, ritual impurity results. Now, ritual impurity is twice as long if it's a girl baby compared to a boy baby. Uh, Why is that? Well, I put my modern presupposition hat on and I say the answer is obvious. This is a patriarchal culture that looked down on women. And because they looked down on women, you were impure longer if you had a girl. Uh, that's what seems an obvious answer to many moderns. In fact, you can read a commentary by a man named Martin Note, N-O-T-H, um, on Leviticus 1965, maybe. Um, and that's, that's his take on what's going on here. Here's where I'd say, well, now, hold on. Uh, is that what we're supposed to conclude? And I actually think there are various reasons why that's not what we're supposed to conclude. The first is, if we think of the original audience, and remember, this is Israel's story. These laws are being given to them. Well, how does their story begin? And when you go back to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, what you read there is that God creates humanity in his image, and it says very explicitly, male and female they are equally in the image of God and because that's part of Israel's story whatever the law here is doing in Leviticus 12 it has to fit with that story and that means it can't mean that you're looking down on on females um, that's not the reason for the lengthened impurity no male and female equally in the in, image of God and uh, as a second, kind of corroborating, um, as corroborating support here, it's fascinating to read through some pre-moderns who are commenting on Leviticus chapter 12. Uh, And as you look through, uh, when I was doing research for the commentary, um, what I learned is that there are actually different reasons that pre-moderns give for this. Um, Some of them are non-medical reasons. Uh, one commentator back in 1810 by the name of Gill said well the the boy is circumcised shortly after birth and somehow that that shortens his length of impurity um, I mean this is a this is a total guess but it's fascinating that this gentleman who, who's writing at a period of time where women didn't even have the right to vote doesn't go the same direction our very modern minds go um, other, Uh, more ancient uh, people suggested, well, the women bled longer after the birth of a girl. Um, That's not medically true, but that's what some were guessing. One fellow by the name of Rabbi Ishmael, and he's writing very close to New Testament times. um, And he argues, well, the formation of boys in the womb was shorter. So their cleansing period was shorter. Now, again, medically, that's not at all true. But here's the fascinating thing. Rabbi Ishmael was far closer in worldview to an ancient Israelite than a modern person is. And where does he not go? He does not go to, oh, this is a negative commentary on the value of women. And to me, that's utterly fascinating and is a helpful reminder to me that I might be coming to some wrong conclusions if I'm just looking at these laws through my modern presuppositions.
0: Hmm, that's so great. And the last question I have for you here, um, and we might go to a little bit of Q&A, just depending on how everything goes, um, is how does Leviticus relate to Jesus? Like, obviously, like as Christians, we have the, the privilege of like kind of looking at back at everything um, with knowledge of Christ and like God's full re- revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so how does Leviticus relate to Jesus?
1: I think I'd say most broadly that when you understand Leviticus well, you understand Jesus better. Uh, so, uh, ski, my wife and I, we were in England three and a half years. That's where I was doing my, um, PhD work. Uh, my focus was the book of Leviticus. And so, um, by the way, you want to get out of a conversation at a dinner party, just tell people you're studying Leviticus full time. It works almost (laughs) every single time. Um, but what it meant was, uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five, I was studying Leviticus all day long. And if you've read Leviticus, you know it talks a lot about sacrifice and um, atonement, Um, this idea that um, I like to define atonement as um, God in his love makes a way uh, for us to deal with our wrongs so that we might be made right with him. God in his love makes a way to deal with our wrongs so we might be made right with him. And Leviticus focuses a lot on this. And What I found, Zach, is that uh, about a year into my studies, when I would go to church, Ski and I would go to church and we'd start singing a song and the words of the song would mention something about sacrifice or atonement. And it became really difficult for me not to cry because I understood all the more clearly how unfathomably gracious God was in providing a way in Jesus for our sins to be forgiven. I I understood all the more deeply what it means that God's provided this way of atonement, this way of dealing with our wrongs in his love, dealing with our wrongs so that we might be made right with him. And so one of my favorite verses in Leviticus is Leviticus 17, 11. Um, Every time I take communion, um, I say this verse to myself and I, I usually say it to myself in Hebrew because there's an extra emphasis in the Hebrew that's so meaningful. In Leviticus 17, 11, God is answering the question, why do sacrifices even work as a way for sin to be forgiven? Um, and so what God says is this, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Uh, in other words, when you look at the blood of a sacrifice, it's life blood. Um, and then he says, and here's the emphasis in the Hebrew, v'ani notativ lachem, and I, I have given it to you on the altar to atone for your lives. In other words, we normally think of sacrifice as something that we give to God. Um, and it is. And the Israelites gave sacrifices to God. But what God is doing here is he's reversing the conceptual direction. He is saying, no, this works. It's something I'm giving to you. Uh, in other words, the only reason it works is because God in his grace is saying, instead of bringing judgment to bear on you for all your sins, on, on for all the ways that you've hurt other people and brought – um, pain into this world, instead of bringing judgment to, to bear on you for that, I'm going to accept the lifeblood of this sacrifice so that you can be cleansed, your conscience can be um, clear, and you can enter into relationship with your maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, that happens with an animal's lifeblood, with sacrifices that the Israelites brought. In the New Testament, it happens because of Jesus' lifeblood. And we bring nothing at all. Jesus does it all. And he does so as an act of love. There's a verse that says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves better. He came and he gave his life for messed up people like you and me so that we might live. And Leviticus made that clearer to me than ever before
0: that's so great so thank you so much for going through those questions um jay uh we do have a little bit of live questions here so if you f- want to add yours feel free we have a little bit of time um i do know jay um i don't f- don't feel pressure to answer every question like if there's something that you don't want to talk about i understand because i really appreciate um just like emailing you and such like just your your concern for having like a well thought out developed answer and not just kind of answering things on the fly um so feel yeah, free to pass if good. there's a question that um doesn't do it so first off um can you explain to me um what the actual formulation for quantum gravity is
1: i have no idea whatsoever
0: (laughs) that's a joke that wasn't actually a question in the live chat i just i don't know i thought that for some reason um first off here's from jonah which says what are your thoughts on the providential errancy view of scripture advocated by people like greg boyd and randall rouser i don't know if you have any thoughts on this jay
1: um, I have not read Boyd and Rouser on that specific question. Um, I think I understand from the the uh, uh, the way the uh, the way it's framed, providential errancy, that um, God providentially allowed mistakes in His Scripture um, mm-hmm. uh, for for uh, whatever reason. Um, if that's the proper understanding of providential errancy, um, look, I. I I always want to help my students think through how does the Bible look at itself? Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at how the Bible looks at itself, I don't see any room for something like providential errancy. Again, if I've understood it correctly, and I may not have, I'm sorry. I think it's a
0: pretty fair definition Um, from my very, very limited non-Bible scholar knowledge. I think that's a pretty fair definition what you said.
1: Yeah. So I always want to, um, I want to look to the Bible for how does it view itself um, and I also, of course, uh, want to look at how does Jesus view how the scriptures are functioning? And his view of scripture is so high that as his follower, I want to make sure that my view is as high as his. You know, I'm thinking of, of Matthew 5, where he says, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Um, and or on the road to Emmaus with Luke 24, how he's he's speaking about all the scriptures pointing to him and he just has such a high view of, of scripture. And of course, the apostles follow right in, in line with this. All scriptures is God breathed, um, you know, given for our, our correction, reproof, et cetera. And so, uh, yeah, I just want to keep as high a view of the Bible as the Bible seems to have of itself.
0: Mm, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Um, another question here from Swift C says, um, Hey, Dr. Sklar, um, Leviticus 20, 25, 46, when it says, but over the brothers, the people of Israel, should not rule over one another ruthlessly. Um, does that mean that foreign slaves were treated harshly? So I don't know if you want to comment on this question. Jane yeah, or
1: not. no, that's, that's a great question. And I think um, there are some passages in Le- Leviticus 25 that uh, really take extra care because again, we're dealing with a context in which there were debt slaves and um uh debt slavery was its own institution and that kind of thing and so um in my commentary i actually have a uh an additional note on slavery in leviticus and and it's i think it's a two or three page note but just trying to go into some of these questions which are really good questions Um, Whoever Swift C is, it's a fantastic question. Here's how I've understood the word ruthlessly there. Um, When you look at how that uh, word is used elsewhere, it seems to be uh, with reference especially to time, or at least in the context of Leviticus 25, it seems to be tied into time. Um, So ruthlessly would be like beyond the Jubilee or beyond the, um, uh, in Leviticus 25, uh, every every fifty years, all all Is, Israelite debt slaves are to go free. So don't rule over one another ruthlessly, let them go free. Foreign slaves did not go free. Um, so uh, that same that same law doesn't apply to them, but it doesn't mean um, you therefore got to treat them harshly. Uh, actually, if you read through the the laws on um, I prefer servanthood to slavery, Um, In Exodus and Leviticus, uh, if we had followed those laws in this country, the slave trade would have been decimated uh, because it's just so clear you can't treat another human being as a piece of chattel. Mm.
0: That's so great. Thank you so much for your answer, Jay. Um, A couple more questions. Um, um, Jonah says, again, how how does the sacrificial view of atonement differ to like um, pagan, um, for example, like Aztec human sacrifices? It seems to be given this view, the only problem is that they had the wrong God. Um, So I don't know if you have any comments on this or not, Jay, Um, because the atonement is a big deal, especially in Leviticus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So as you're going through – there are a couple of things to say. The one is um, that human sacrifices, by which we mean uh, taking somebody against their will and slaughtering them, um, which is what I understand is happening in Aztec um, ceremonies, is completely against God's will. Um, this is very clear. Uh, the story in Genesis 22, for example, of Abraham and Isaac. Um, if you're an Israelite reading this, uh, and the story goes, um, the, it begins with the Lord saying, to Abraham, okay, take your son, your beloved son whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. And you and I, get we we stumble right there. But you have to remember in the ancient world, this this wouldn't have seemed all that strange. This is what gods could ask you to do. And so by the end of the story, when God stops him from doing it, one of the takeaways for an ancient Israelite is, oh, that's not what we're supposed to do with human beings. So that's the first thing to say. This is why in ancient Israel, it's not human sacrifices, it's uh, animal sacrifices. Um, When you come to Jesus, what's going on here is Jesus coming from heaven to earth in order to be the ultimate lamb of God. Uh, And so it's completely exceptional in terms of him being a sacrifice um, on behalf of human sin. Um, He's the only human that can ever do it because he's the only human who's completely blameless.
0: Hmm. That's so great. Um, just trying to follow along here. Um, okay. Um, one more question here from Swift C, not necessarily related to Leviticus. Um, so if you don't want to comment on this, I totally understand. Um, but it says, um, how do you look at Old Testament slavery in light of the New Testament and how it views slavery such as like the book of Phile- Philemon?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things to keep in mind is that, um, in the Old Testament, you're, you're dealing primarily with debt servitude. Uh, it's actually better to refer to it. I think most frequently as indentured servanthood. Um, there certainly were exceptions. What Pharaoh was doing to the Israelites, that was much more like chattel slavery. Um, but in the old, in the old Testament within Israel itself, you're really looking at indentured servants. And so, um, this was something that was actually common even in the West, uh, Uh, up until fairly recent times where someone might say, okay, I'll, um, if you bring me from Ireland to America and pay for my voyage, I'll serve you for two years to pay off the debt, an indentured servant. So that's what you're looking at, um, especially in the old Testament. And um, when you, when you read through the laws there carefully, you know, there, there are protections given to servants, that kind of thing. When you come into the new Testament, uh, slavery took on a different, um, uh, a bit of a different hue because of what was going on in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and there it wasn't often, uh, or necessarily debt servant or debt debt servitude that took you into slavery. And there could be other reasons that that you ended up being a slave. So it, it's a bit hard just to compare. Uh, it's not quite apples to apples, Old Testament to New Testament.
0: Hmm. Um, great questions here the hardest one here and the last one here is from that one gamer which says um how are you guys doing today so we're at the end of the interview jay how how are you uh hopefully you're like i never want to talk to this guy again
1: zach i'm 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 just so appreciative that you're doing something like this it's clear to me you've got a deep love for the lord and may the lord just bless you in it
0: yeah I, i appreciate it it's very kind of you and i appreciate um how the Lord has equipped different people like you, um, Jay, to be studying the book of Leviticus, which is such a fascinating book. Um, the more I think about it, but it can seem very challenging, um, for Christians just kind of getting into the door of what's going on here. Um, so we are around at the end of our time, Jay. So do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you get to say before we wrap things up here?
1: No, just, uh, if, if folks want to send a follow up email at all, you can, you can probably find me by going to, covenantseminary.edu. And there's a faculty page there and, um, uh, or send a, send, try and try and get me through that. Um, or if you know, Zach, um, Zach can forward on an email to me, uh, happy to try and engage any more questions you might have.
0: Mm, That's so great. And I appreciate your kind offer there, Jay. Um, and I encourage everyone after you can check out, um, Jay and everything he's got going on there's a link down below where you can learn about him. Um, be sure to check out adherent apologetics. If you're new, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, if you're listening via podcast, leaving a review really helps. Um, and if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com. So should hear for as little as a dollar a month or about 85% of the way to our funding goal, I think. So very thankful for everyone through that. Um, so you can join there. But Jay, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. I appreciate you coming on today.
1: You bet. Thanks, Zach.
0: And thank you, everyone who turned in. Thank you, Jesus, with C, the Gamer, um, Jono, everyone. Have a good one and God bless.